listening to Workers' Power on 4ZZZ with Jackson and Calypso. So today, thank you to Artcart and Zedlines for your shows that you did. Now, today on the show, we of course have our plenty of, have plenty of workers action. But in the second hour, we will be talking to someone from the NTEU who uh, is currently running a campaign in QUT over... Uh, so that's just all the bullshit that universities are usually doing, plus some new fun stuff that they're doing, uh, such as broadcasting dead people. Anyway, we'll leave that for later. Before Now, before we get into the show itself, we will need to acknowledge that the traditional the traditional owners from the land from which we broadcast who are the Yagra and Turrbal people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we also acknowledge all First Nations comrades listening today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggles for recognitions, reparations, and land, right, land rights. We live and benefit on stolen land. It's time to pay the rent. Uh, yes, lovely. And now that we have done that, we're going to move on to the first segment of our show, which is the First Nations Workers Action, where we have some uh, bad things have happened, as always. Well, is our second story good? No, that's also bad. But, oh, lots of sad stories today. Uh, but it's important to report on them. But yes, also people are fighting back to g- correct the injustice um, so do you want to get us started, Calypso? Yes. Miss Wynne, grandmother, calls for changes to police restraints following inquest. The grandmother of Miss Wynne has called for controversial handcuffing and restraint technique to be banned at the conclusion of an inquest into the 26-year-old's death. Nunga Yamaji woman, Miss Wynne, fell unconscious on the 4th of April 2019 after being restrained by Western Australian police. She was held face down on the ground with her arms behind her and an officer's knees placed across her back. An expert physician who gave evidence at the inquest said that Miss Wynne went into cardiac arrest under the effects of methamphetamine while being restrained. She died in Royal Perth Hospital five days later. Mrs Wynne's grandmother, Jenny Clayton, said she wants the method of restraint used on Miss Wynne to be banned. The prone position used to restrain people by police should be abolished completely and not be used to put handcuffs on a person because it causes asphyxiation, she told NITV News outside the Perth Central Law Courts on Friday. There's got to be some other option besides putting them on the ground, forcing their hands behind their back and kneeling on their shoulder blades. Police officers were attempting to detain the mother of three under the Western Australia Mental Health Act after reports she had self-harmed and was suffering a severe mental health episode. She was not being apprehended for committing a crime. Sergeant Chase Williams told the inquest that he pushed Miss Wynne onto her stomach and placed his knee on her upper back to allow officers to handcuff her arms behind her and to prevent Miss Wynne from getting up. Western Australian Police Use of Force Advisor Chris Markham told the inquest on Friday that Sergeant Williams had acted in accordance with police training. Prone handcuffing is the preferred method of handcuffing. It's easy to apply handcuffs to the rear. We have far better control and prevent the risk of injury, Mr Markham said. In the prone position, the arresting officers are going to be using the shin or their knee to restrain that person. It's part of the training. 
However, the inquest heard that police officers in Western Australia also provided annual training to recognise the dangers of the technique, including that the subdued person may suffer positional asphyxia. The inquest heard that none of the four officers present at the scene checked Mrs Wynne's breathing during the nearly two minutes that she was restrained or asked her if she was able to breathe. An investigation by Western Australia Police Force Internal Affairs Union cleared all officers involved with Miss Wynne of any wrongdoing. Miss Clayton's son and Mrs Wynne's father died in a police watch house in Albany when he too was 26 years old. It's been really distressing for all of our family, listening to a lot of the evidence. I find that it's really conflicting and I'm trying to make some sense of it, she says. During the inquest, CCTV footage showing Mrs Wynne running from police officers in the middle of Albany Highway was played to the court. After seeing the CCTV of her running, I thought, she must have been so terrified and frightened. Thinking the police are after me, they're going to do what they've done to my father, she said. And then I think of her little ones that she left behind, and they've got to grow up without their mum. It's just very emotional. The court rejected an application by SBS News and NITV to have footage released to the media. Miss Wynne's family supports the release of the footage. Around 40 demonstrators laid face down on the road in front of the court after midday on Friday, imitating the position Miss Wynne was restrained in before she fell unconscious. Among them was Miss Wynne's four-year-old daughter, Shirley Rose, wearing a shirt collaged with her deceased mother's image. Shirley Rose was taken by Child Protection Services two weeks before her mother died. Miss Wynne, when Miss Wynne brought her up to Joondalup Health Campus, concerned the child had ingested medications. It took six months for Miss Wynne's maternal grandmother, Barbara Stokel Clayton, to get custody of Shirley Rose. Her mum went through a really hard life, so we're just trying to make sure she has a better life. We're trying to break a, a cycle of poverty, Miss Stokel Clayton said. She's just one beautiful kid. With the inquest now complete, the family awaits the findings and recommendations of Coroner Philip Urquhart. It's just heartbreaking to think that this can happen. At the end of the day, the system has failed and what we're seeking is justice, Miss Clayton said. My granddaughter must have been very confused, very terrified and frightened, especially in her mental state of mind. Then she went off and self-harmed and that and nobody helped her. We want to change for our future generations so that this doesn't happen to any other Aboriginal families or any family for that matter. Yeah, so the police have killed a mentally ill Indigenous person um, using that prone method, which I believe was the same thing which killed George Floyd over in the US, um, or at least something similar, the knee on the back. Uh, and they're still using it, uh, and they're still being uh, irresponsible with the use of it, as was mentioned when they said that none of the police officers had asked if she was able to breathe or checked breathing. They couldn't be bothered because they didn't care. Yeah, despite <laughs> despite their training telling them that they have to... They're, have to they're aware. It. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're aware. They just... Cops suck, Uh I don't think they should have been dispatched in the first place. She yeah. hadn't committed any crime. She needed help. They should have sent an ambulance. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, the, she was someone who needed help. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, 
Yeah, and, and instead of helping, they threw her to the ground and handcuffed her and prevented her from breathing. And now she is no longer with us. And her child is without a mother and her family is without... And this had already happened in that family. This is the yeah. second generation of this happening. This is something we we hear a lot with these kinds of stories. Indigenous people have uh, encounters with police and they go similarly to encounters with police that have happened in the past, such as earlier this year when there was a police car chase uh, of an indigenous person who crashed and died um, and who had in the past been threatened by police as a child told that they were going to be killed if they didn't stop messing around or something like that something ridiculous they've already put the fear into these people hmm. uh, but you have of course have the people fighting back you have her grandmother who is um, asking is asking to have that uh, method banned. It should be banned. Yeah, and you have these uh, the demonstrators. There's like I'd say like forty demonstrators. Yeah, outside the court who are doing who are, yeah get organizing together to fight back and prevent any future deaths. All right. Let's move on to the next story, which is also sad to listen to. Did you want to read this one? I can do this, yes. So, Northern Territory Indigenous Teens Heartbreaking Account to Disability Royal Commission. A Northern Territory teenager living with disability has told a Royal Commission a harrowing account of his life in out-of-home care. The 17-year-old, known as I.L., was taken away from his family and put into foster homes when he was eight and has been in and out of detention since he was ten. I have everything in here, he told the inquiry in a pre-recorded interview from the Dondale Detention Centre. When I'm in here, they give me everything, and then when I get out, it's like they just kick me onto the streets. That's what happened recently, you know. I was out of parole and they said that they have, they'll have all this stuff for me, appointments and stuff for my therapist and everything like that, and then when I got out, nothing ever happened. It was pretty hard for me, you know. I just felt like every word you forgot about me. The Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with a Disability is investigating the experiences of First Nation children in out-of-home care and detention settings. The young man told the Royal Commission he'd been placed in 20 Darwin foster homes in his life and not seen his family in Alice Springs for four years. He said he couldn't recall ever being placed with First Nations carers. To quote, I've never really had anybody to teach me right and wrong, you know. He also detailed how he'd been assaulted by multiple carers. Quote, most of them used to bash me and stuff, force me to clean the house, and, you know, I, and I trusted them, you know, and I was a young kid trying to get away from that stuff, and I trusted them to look after me. He said that some of the charges which have resulted in him being put in youth detention related to breaching bail when he'd fled abusive boss foster homes. Friday's hearing is the second Indigenous-specific public hearing to be held by the Royal Commission. It aims to provide an insight into the life course of Indigenous children with disabilities and their experiences, including cumulative and systemic abuse and neglect by multiple systems over time. Council assisting Lincoln Crowley said that more than 20% of Indigenous children have a disability, compared to 8% in the general population. Out of the 45... 
46,000 children in out-of-home care and in 2019 and 2020, uh, 18,000 more than 40% were Indigenous. Uh, significantly higher than the approximately 6% of the total child population in Australia who are First Nations, Mr Crowley said. Of the Indigenous children in out-of-home care, 14% were reported as having a disability. However, Mr Crowley said that number is likely to be underreported. The available data portrays the stark reality of the overrepresentation of First Nations children in out-of-home care and the consequent overrepresentation of First Nations children with disability in out-of-home care, he said. The Royal Commission Chair Ronald Sackville said Indigenous children with a disability experience multiple forms of disadvantage that expose them to greater risk of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. The, those disadvantages include the impact of colonisation involving the dispossession of First Nations people, forced assimilation, marginalisation, intergenerational trauma and not least the removal of children from families and communities. The disadvantages also include social and economic impacts which have resulted in many of those children experiencing poverty, inadequate housing and poor health. Central Australian Strong Grandmothers Group also gave evidence from Alice Springs. Uh, Doreen McCormack said she wants more focus on diverting young people from detention. We're fighting to make sure they get back to country instead of being in an institution. They need to be sent back to country and the government needs to do some more, make sure we send them home to their home to their homeland instead. Kamali uh, Kamali Ryle told the Royal Commission that too many f- children had been taken into custody and transferred to Dundale in Darwin with no consultation with their families. A lot of those kids, young men, young women, do have disabilities, she said via video link. They got something wrong with their eyes or, and hearing, or maybe they didn't get a chance of a good education. The system does fail our people, our kids, and our kids in custody, and our kids with disability. The hearing was scheduled to take place in Alice Springs, however, the ongoing COVID-19 outbreaks and border closures mean it will now be closed and broadcast via video. Yes. So another story about Indigenous people with disabilities getting uh, screwed over in our Systematically, system. too. Yeah. Um, that is, yeah, one of the biggest things. Uh, I've spent some time working in, like, volunteering for homeless people, and one of the things I've noticed is that most of the people are either Indigenous or have a disability or both. Uh, who come to get uh, the services. Um, well, it sounds like the foster care isn't a very good option for them, so... No. If, if you're uh, under 18, some some of these people might rather be homeless than be in the foster care system, it sounds like. Hmm. Or that that's a terrible thing that's been happening, and we have this Royal Commission going on, which will hopefully bring about some change uh, but we'll see they don't always bring about change uh, I imagine it's pretty rare though I don't haven't really done a lot of research into that to be honest anyway now we're going uh, to workers action uh, when we've got some good news yes to, good to news. bring us up after the bummer that was the last section uh, yes this one is from the ETU Do you want to read it out? Yeah. This is a post from the New South Wales ETU on Tuesday the 14th last week. ETU members at Plasterboard Manufacturer 
T-E-X, formerly GNUF, will strike for 24 hours on Wednesday in pursuit of a fair pay rise. The company has failed to make an acceptable offer to around 40 workers belonging to the CMFEU, AMWU and ETU. After seven months of fruitless negotiations, workers voted unanimously to approve protected industrial action. The Matraville company refuses to meet the moderate union demand for an annual 3% pay rises to match the cost of living. ETU members are also pressing for payment of the industry's standard $2 per hour electrical license allowance. ETEX is owned by a Belgian multinational company that has cried poor throughout negotiations. But an ETU investigation found the company's profits soared 10% to $30 million last year. ETEX's Australian assets grew to $200 million. This is a highly prosperous company making huge profits with a bright financial outlook, said ETU organiser Stuart Edward. The key to ETEX's success are the loyal, hardworking employees. The company's failure to make a fair offer is disgraceful. ETU delegate Aidan Hearn said, Maintenance workers are working harder than ever. We are going above and beyond with additional project work. I think we've been entirely reasonable, but the company has not listened or respected us. Stuart Edwards said that union members who stay strong and united win. And then the very next day, they posted this. ETU members at Plasterboard Maker ETEX have won a 9% pay rise over three years after taking strike action. The Belgian-owned company caved in during the first day of industrial action on Wednesday. Around 40 workers, including CMFEU, AMWU and ETU members, will receive three annual 3% wage increases back paid to May. ETU members achieved the introduction of electrical license allowance and will seek to increase its rate in the next EBA. This is a great outcome by a determined group who backed their reasonable claims with strike action, said ETU organiser Stuart Edward. The result proves again that workers who stick together win. So how about that? Hell yeah. Well, that's that's it then. You gotta you gotta take industrial action. Yeah, they 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 went on strike, and the very next day, oh oh, the the boss has caved. They win. How long had they been fighting for this negotiations before they took industrial (laughs) action? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes these things go on for years, you know. But once you get once you get out on the picket line, that's when the bosses get scared. (laughs) Yes, and they won. Good on good on yours. Good on yours at the ETU and CFMEU and AMWU. Awesome stuff. Etc. Yeah. So, so what do they want? Nine percent pay rise over three years. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. what they asked for. Electrical license allowance. That was also what they wanted, and they got it. Uh, Hell yeah! Nothing, nothing much else to say. Union about that. power. It's just a good win. Very quick win. Yeah. <laughs> you go out on strike, you get a win. It's great. Our next story is from the MUA uh, from Friday the seventeenth last week. It's about the QB strike. Um, So this is a post from their page. The MUA Cube Fremantle crew are into their 50th day 
of protected industrial action. Our members won't be backing down until the cube shiny asses agree to the, an EBA which sorts out allocations times and our other key bargaining claims. Cubes, Romper Stomper, WA Management have overreached in their attack on the safety and employment standards of their Fremantle workforce and our members have stood up and fought back. This is a struggle which could not have sust- we could not have sustained on our own. We want to thank our broader membership and MUA sites and vessels around the country and the MUA branches and their leadership, along with the CFMU, ETU, AWU, TWU, AMW, PPTD, EU, ILW, ILA, MUNZ, IDC and the ITF. This dispute has reinforced the need for global solidarity of unions and their members and the importance of having fighting funds which will ensure our members are not starved back to work on substandard employment terms. We will go one day longer and one day stronger than Cube and their incompetent scab workforce. The likes of Wilhelmsen and K-Line that are standing behind Cube, scab workers and Cube's dodgy employment practices stand condemned by the international union movement. Oh yeah. They also stand condemned by workers' power, four triple set. (laughs) 50 days. So this is a bit of a different strike than the one we just reported. Not quite as a quick, not, not quite as much of a quick win They've been going for uh, nearly two months now. Um, that's as of last week, so a bit longer than that. Um, but they have the support of a long list of unions from around the world, as is the case typically with uh, maritime unions, because you know they're traveling all over the place, um, or at least they're, bis- they're they're sort of connected. Like you know, the ports, the boats go from one to the others in other countries and stuff like that. Um, so you have stuff like the ILWU, which I believe is the International Longshoremen's Workers Union, or something like that. Yeah, a lot of unions there, and that's that's really good to have solidarity. Yeah, yeah, um, especially when it comes to having fighting funds, as they mentioned. Uh, with a long strike like that, you're, you're going to uh, get starved out a bit, but with the help from everyone else, you can uh, stick it out you know yeah um, have the strength to keep going and uh you also have unfortunately the scab workforce at cube who keep the money running in for them so you need to be able to deal with them Mm -hmm. somehow usually through a picket line there are other methods but we don't have to talk about those on air (laughs) Um, we have with us this story is a continuation of the trucking campaign currently going on by being done by the TWU which started with the toll strike happened a little while ago I think it's trucking amazing (laughs) and I believe this is the second strike as part of that campaign I feel like we reported on another one but I can't really remember Um, anyway this is another one in it with Star Trek the, well, the, the Ozpost one. Do you want to read that out? Yes. Star Trek workers will hold a 24-hour strike on Thursday this week, claiming the company's management has declined an invitation to hold an urgent negotiation meeting this week. The truck drivers say they have been asking the company to include specific guarantees in their enterprise agreement to lessen the impact of outsourcing, but the company has knocked them back. The Transport Workers Union says Star Trek Star Trek has been outsourcing work at increasing rates to as high as 70% at some yards, and the practice is threatening employees' jobs. 
Star Trek is owned by Australia Post. The vote to strike next week comes after Australia Post delivered more parcels last month than during the Christmas period last year due to COVID lockdowns across the country. Whoa. That's that's huge. More than Christmas last year. Yeah, last year was during COVID. COVID. <laughs> wow. In the most recent financial year, Australia Post reported a record group revenue of $8.3 billion, up 10.3%, and a profit before tax of $100.7 million. It returned dividends to the federal government of $46.2 million. Star Trek was the group's most profitable arm, with volumes up 12.2%. Star Trek workers are fighting for their enterprise agreement to include the same pay and conditions for labour hire workers as employees. They also want the agreement to include caps on the use of outside hire and a commitment to offer all available hours to Star Trek employees before contracting work out. TWU National Secretary Michael Caine said standards were being driven down across major transport operators in Australia as the country reels from the Amazon effect. He said Star Trek's management were toying with workers' livelihoods at the same time as workers were under intense pressure to deliver record volumes of parcels. Supply chains are wrung dry by cost-cutting by wealthy retailers while operators are forced to compete with exploitative Amazon Flex, Mr Kane said. This would all be solved by an independent tribunal to set minimum protections for workers. For months now, the workers sweating it out in trucks and distribution centres to meet extreme demand have been battling behind the scenes to protect their jobs against an insurgence of outsourcing to lower paid workers. We know the Australian community expects more from government-owned Australia Post than for hard-working people's jobs to be on the line when demand and revenues are through the roof, he said. Last week, a ballot closed with 90% endorsement of strike action, giving about 2,000 Star Trek members, roughly 70% of the workforce, protection to strike. Australian employees can only legally go on strike during enterprise bargaining negotiations if a majority of workers support industrial action in a vote overseen by the Fair Work Commission. The 24-hour strike will occur next Thursday. The TWU says its members will not disrupt medical or vaccine supplies from getting delivered. And, just like the recent toll strike, provisions will be made on Thursday to ensure the supply of those goods continues. Last month, around 7,000 truck drivers at a transport giant toll group imposed a 24-hour strike after making similar requests for specific guarantees to be included in their enterprise agreement. The TWU said job security guarantees were being sought by thousands of workers at numerous major transport operators to defend against the push to compete with business models like Amazon Flex by slashing labour costs and outsourcing work. A FedEx protected action ballot will close at 5pm on Friday and ballots at BevChain and Linfox will close on Monday and Tuesday respectively. Negotiations are continuing at Toll and Toll Global Express after last month's 24-hour strike by thousands of truck drivers. Hell yeah. That's great. Sounds like Star Trek's making a truckload (laughs) and the workers are seeing none of it. And that's not fair. Yeah. So they're going on strike, which is what you should do. That's what you should do. When you're getting screwed over by the boss. Or not necessarily go on strike. There are other forms of industrial action you can take. 
Um, but strikes strikes are, strikes are pretty strikes good. are always pretty good. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's just nice and simple. You just stop working, and then you stop work from being done. Good on yours, eh? Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, and of course, as with this uh, campaign, there is of course the effects of Amazon, which is always important to mention. The uh, gig economy is creeping in of truck driving. Which is just something you'd expect. Like you can't just become a truck driver as easily as you can a a rideshare driver or something like that. Um, but <laughs> they're managing to stick it in there, you know. Yeah, and um, it's 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 a very demanding job. Some of these truck oh, drivers yeah. have to like drive across the state. Some of them have to be driving twenty four hours without rest. It's it's not safe. Um, it's not sustainable, but. A lot of these like deadlines and demands require truck drivers to drive long hours without rest. And if they're going to introduce this to the gig economy, we're just going to see lower paid workers with less protections doing the same dangerous work and people are going to die. Yeah, yeah, that, we've already seen that with other gig economy things, people dying, and you already see that in the trucking industry, uh, which they've mentioned as part of this campaign, like trucking is an already dangerous industry and this is just going to make it more dangerous. Um, and for such a... M- for an industry that makes so much money, it is... Uh, it's like... Crazy it's amount of money. That was, that was billion, not yeah. million. 8.3 billion in revenue and 100 million in uh, profits. They can um, absolutely afford to give job protections to And that's just Australia workers. Post. Uh, there are, of course, other... Um, delivery companies who are probably also making a killing uh and good on the tw for fighting back across the industry as well like that i think that is really important here that the this is not just against a single employer it is they're taking action in the industry as a whole uh so they can't so like the retailers who are they are targeting, uh, like Coles and Woolworths, other stores, um, they can't just go to the other uh, truck tr- truck companies who are more exploitative and cheaper. They, by taking action across the whole industry, they make sure that uh, conditions are raised across the board with no um, negative. Well, ideally, while minimizing the negative implications. Uh, that could come with that. And when they win, no one will be left behind. Oh, yes. Yeah. You're listening to Workers' Power on 4ZZZ with Jackson Calypso and we have our guest Kate in the studio here with us from NTU and NTU Fightback to talk about what is going on at QUT. Kate, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name's Kate Green and I'm a professional staff member um, and education student and National Tertiary Education Union activist at QUT. Awesome. So there's been some stuff happening at QUT recently. I heard on Thursday there was a rally. 
Yeah, so um, basically uh, uh, QUTs um, had some cuts and staff have fought back. So um, basically as staff we've faced an expansive cuts to our pay, conditions, job security and staff rights with overworking and underpayment, casualisation, sackings, bullying and a climate of fear rife within QUT. While the Vice-Chancellor, the highest paid VC in Queensland, made an income of $1.2 million in 2020, an estimated $1,000 1,500 staff members were sacked under the guise of COVID cost-cutting measures. The university has slashed staff working conditions and jobs while making a $23 million surplus, sitting on $2 billion in assets and spending $10 million on a chancery building renovation, including a luxury private bathroom for the VC. <laughs> so it's pretty appalling. Um, so basically in July, QUT NTU activists created a staff petition demanding the university conduct no further sham voluntary redundancies or job losses, identify staff eligibility for more secure positions, positions to be re-offered to SAC staff, rehire staff who have taught the previous teaching period, employment contracts to be received by staff one month before commencement for consultation, the university must not use recordings or learning content produced by SAC or deceased staff members, a clear itemised list of what is expected in prep time, all sessional staff to be invited to relevant staff school meetings, clear details of how marking time is calculated, sessional appointments to be finalised six weeks prior to the start of the semester, all contracts to contain provisions for extra weeks pay if required and return to pay on appointment with strapping, scrapping of the new timesheet model, uh, pay staff all hours work and an additional 10 hours payment per semester for sessional staff in recognition of email correspondence. Um, so we did gain 450 signatures on this petition, breaking the record for previous NTU petitions at QT, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> and NTU staff protest was also held last Thursday at QT outside the Chancellery building with over 50 people in attendance um, and speakers included John O'Shree, Amy McMahon from the Greens, um, the NTU branch president and division secretary, the guild president at QT, student and QT education action group member, QT staff and NTU activist, UQ branch committee member and national union councillor and the staff petition was delivered to the VC through a representative as Margaret tactfully chose to take a day off. Wow. Uh, what I'm really confused about is how they have to cut costs by laying off, uh, what was it, 1,500 staff members? Yeah, exactly. But they have enough money for a luxury private toilet yeah yeah and with the vice chancellor so that's what they have money for yeah with marble furnishings i should add marble Um. furnishings (laughs) wow yeah i mean say what you want about the vice chancellor they have taste yeah exactly (laughs) um but it's not only qt so it is actually like these vcs have like an expansive income and they're all crying poor at the moment Um, So basically, uh, universities were hit hard by the pandemic and the government repeatedly denied access to JobKeeper, Uh, but that doesn't mean the higher-ups were at all affected. Um, Basically, recent reports show that it would have only taken $3.75 billion of government funding to remedy job losses, which pales in comparison to the $90 billion of funding recently announced by the Morrison government uh, for nuclear war submarines. Um, The Liberals (laughs) passed a bill that would have doubled the cost of arts degrees and cut funding from science, engineering, nursing and much more.
more, medical science degrees lost more than 11,000 per student per year, environmental science was defunded by 9,950 per student per year and education degrees lost over 1,000 per student per year. Um, Meanwhile, in 2020, University of Melbourne VC Glyn Davis made 1.59 million. University of Sydney VC Michael Spence made 1.53 million and UNSW VC Ian Jacobs made 1.28 million. So it's unbelievable that these universities are crying poor um, since uh, 25 out of 39 public universities still reported a surplus in 2020. Yeah, so so they, they, they are still making all this money and they could absolutely pay their workers a fair amount. Yeah, that's it. Um, where we as the QUT and uh, activists were calling in our petition for uh, funding to be redirected from the VC to actual to actually funding the workers. 100%. I, I also heard um, on Facebook something about uh, lecture recordings being used of staff members that no longer work there and, and not seeing a single cent of their, their work being used. Yeah, so basically QUT is claiming intellectual property. Um, recordings of deceased and sacked staff members are replacing paid staff, which is now the new norm within QUT. Uh, course content and lecture materials have been recycled with some courses recycling materials from staff who have since been sacked or deceased. One example on QUT student blackboard under the description of a sacked sack SAC staff member was that students will quote hear her online rather than see or hear her in person or the deceased staff member whose teaching recordings are still being used by the university to which university responded in a recent career mail article that they do so with pride which is just absolutely shameful 100% so they'll sack you but continue to use your your work and your labour and you just don't get paid for it now. Or they'll the even recording, keep, they don't need you anymore. Yeah, or they'll even keep you in, employed and just use your recordings over you so you're still not getting paid. And they're using the recordings from dead people. Yes. That's, that's incredibly inappropriate. Yeah. That's um, interesting. So there was no condolences or any... Um, any feeling sorry or anything from the university it was definitely uh as they said with pride so (laughs) there's uh they really have no consideration for the workers that they're ripping off um people staff were forced to do this and record their videos under covid because they realized this was the only option for uh, students studying online and they took to it immediately to record these lectures now these lectures that they recorded in the peak of the covid pandemic are replacing the online lectures that they can teach and should be teaching now uh, once we're out of the lockdown period and we're back on campus. You don't have to pay your workers if they're dead. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, yeah, just... Yep, that's that's very this fun. this really needs to be stopped before it it <laughs> turns into a like no staff working at QUT, all just recordings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is that is so cheap. the The price you pay for a degree just to to get a, a an old recording, and mm. the 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 teacher, the professor doesn't see any cent of that. That's that's insulting yeah that's it and we look at how much students are paying and um in a recent education action group uh survey by a group of uh, student and staff 
members fighting for against the cutbacks at the university, it showed that uh, the most common complaint over being uh, learning being online was that students were actually um, the teaching quality for students was the worst. So that was the biggest complaint out of everything. All the cuts was that the teaching quality was so poor and it's not on the teachers. It's not the teacher's fault. And that's what a lot of the students were acknowledging. Um, most of them actually were saying that they know that their, stu- uh, their teachers are overworked. They know they're taking on work where the sacked uh, comrades they have had that were doing the work now aren't. Um, and they know that they're taking on more workload than they should be. And that's it's a pretty big workload as well, being a university worker, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of underpayment that's rife within the university because staff are just taking on so much of a workload. So, what's the NTEU going to do? Um, so basically. Uh, the QUT NTU activists developed the staff petition and held the protest. We're also preparing for enterprise bargaining, so that means we can legally enter a strike period. Um, that means we can also change legislative um, rules within the university. So we're really keen on um, following up with the petition and the uh, all the points we had in the petition, um, and we're going to uh, respond to those and and hold the university accountable on their actions. Just to summarise, what's, real quickly, what's QUT doing? Um, So to summarise, QUT, we've got QUT anti-activists who've recently put out a petition. We got 450 signatures and recently held a protest with about 50 people in attendance. Um, And we're about to prepare for enterprise bargaining, which is where we can legally um, enter a strike period um, and can change legislative uh, rules within the university in our enterprise agreement. So they're, they've been they've been stealing these recordings and profiting off of it while not playing not paying the workers for their their recordings and their intellectual property can people do to join this fight? Yeah, so um, basically for uni- university staff not in the union, uh, definitely join the NTU, become part of a collective group of like-minded workers who want to challenge management to get the best out of their workplace. Uh, for university staff already within the union, chat to your fellow workers, encourage them to join the union and start getting politically organised about the issues that face you, both within and beyond your workplace. Start a petition hold a protest, organise a rally, all of these things are vital to making real change. Hell yeah, and I'm sure there's also a Facebook page they could look up. Um, what, what would that be, QT Fight Back? Uh, so we don't have a, a Facebook page at the moment, um, but definitely if you get connected with any of your fight back groups within your universities, there's not fight back groups within all universities, but if you do have one within your university, there'll definitely be a Facebook page for that one specifically. Awesome. And we're going we're gonna to keep reporting on this issue, keeping our listeners up to date with uh, what happens when it's time for... The next step, industrial action, which is what we're all about on this show. 
Always love a good strike. Always yeah. Strike. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> yes. Or you might even win beforehand. Yes, there's always happen, hope. But it can. The QTU, like last year, almost went on strike. It was very close. And then right before they did, the they caved in to the demands. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think strike poses a big threat to mm. the university bosses. Um, they can't have their uh, students not being educated. They can't have a marking not going on. So I definitely think uh, there is a strong um, threat with uh, strike action at universities. Yeah, it scares them. Like you said, the VC was so scared of your 50 people protest <laughs> that she didn't show up to work. Yeah. She's probably <laughs> hiding in her marble private luxury bathroom. <laughs> we have tried to end to the private bathroom but have been denied. <laughs> oh, bathrooms for the people. <laughs> um, yeah, great. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You've been fantastic. Anything thanks, else you guys. want to say before we move on? No, I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you to Kate from NTU and NTU Fightback for telling us about what is going on at QUT and we will keep our listeners updated on what is going on in that campaign in the future because it is pretty exciting and always good to see teachers fighting for better conditions for themselves and their students because this of course does not just affect teachers but students as well and their mm -hmm. education and therefore the future of our society itself Big stakes. Big stakes. Now, more important stuff. Uh, sorry, no, not not more important stuff. I mean, also uh, important stuff, stuff. More important stuff as well. More <laughs> more important stuff. <laughs> We're going to some more workers' action. This is a follow-up from what we reported on. I don't know if it was last week. I think it was last week. Yeah, yes, I think it, it was. was last week uh, from the Common Ground thing where there was that really hard lockdown where people were getting kidnapped in New South Wales. Um, now, because you took took care of that interview, I'll take care of reading this for us. Uh, after 14 days of lockdown, 130 residents of the social housing estate Common Ground were released on September 15th. During that time, residents were given little health or operational inv information. They were also over-policed. They formed the Common Ground Action Group in the first few days of the lockdown and campaigned for fresh food, ending police searches of the deliveries, the confiscation of alcohol, health assistance for those undergoing detoxification, and a rent waiver. The action group also wants compensation for the eight residents illegally taken by the New South Wales Police Force to the Concord Drug and Alcohol Hospital before lockdown. Legal Observers New South Wales is working with residents to secure this. Good on ya. Solidarity was shown to common ground residents over the fortnight from many individuals and organisations, including Amnesty International, New South Wales Civil Liberties Council, Tenants Union New South Wales, Shelter New South Wales, Legal Observers New South Wales, and Melbourne Legal Action of support great great to see that there's a lot of a lot of noise solidarity being made about this. yeah solidarity from all the people who realize who have rightly recognized that that was a totally messed up thing to do so legal observers new south wales on september 10th condemned the inappropriate policing saying the sudden and poorly communicated hard lockdown had left residents confused and distressed Mission Australia provides services to the complex, which houses some formerly homeless residents, many with drug and alcohol dependence and mental health difficulties. 
Mission Australia states on its website that it was grateful to God to help us persevere through unprecedented times. It must also be grateful to the federal government's JobsKeeper scheme, which helped it deliver an overall net surplus of $23 million last year. So Common Ground resident and action group spokesperson Safa told Green Left, that's where we got this story, by the way, thank you, Green Left, that Mission Australia had abandoned them to New South Wales Department of Health and the New South Wales Police uh, the police have a difficult relationship with the tenants, many being victims of drug enforcement agencies and regular police profiling. We were treated like suspects, like criminals. If this building wasn't in an affluent area, I guarantee you this lockdown would not have happened. The tenants want an apology from the New South Wales government, compensation for goods destroyed by police, justice for those residents who were taken off the site, and a rent waiver for the period of the lockdown. To quote, we know Mission Australia is considering a rent raver to affordable housing tenants, but not tenants on a government benefit. This is unacceptable to us, Safa said, and I agree. COVID-19 cases are currently rising in the inner city suburbs of Redfern, Waterloo and Zetland. New South Wales Health said on September 16th that 12 people in three public housing towers in Redfern had tested positive. So far, the public housing towers, which are managed by the Department of Community and Justice, have not been locked down. DCJ guidelines state lockdowns or public housing buildings are our last resort as they should be. A number of on-site vaccinations and testing clinics have been set up nearby at the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence in Redfern, the Redfern Community Centre and Poets Corner. Newtown MP Jenny Leung said on September 15th that given the critical role local organisations, groups and services are playing, they need more funding. Yes, so lockdown in that building is over which is good because it was terrible and punishing and unnecessary uh but that has there is still harm that has been done and there need that needs to be recognized i'm glad this is getting attention reparations being made yes Mm -hmm. a lot of attention from all those organizations um that's always nice to have a bunch of organizations see your struggle and go hey that's that what's happened here is messed up and we want to help you get uh, get reparations for and they've formed a community action group which is the thing to do to get justice for your community none of this would have happened if they didn't band together yeah uh so you know good on the residents and safa who has been the spokesperson providing a lot of the quotes in the reporting about this um uh, for your fight, uh, which has, which will hopefully be successful, and if it ex- is successful, we will report that. We'll see how it goes. You know, we can be hopeful. Yeah, I like we can to be hopeful. I, I think, I think, given the amount of attention this is receiving, uh, I th- I'd say the chances are are decent. You know. Mm got a decent chance at success here now we have 13 minutes left in the show we're going to move on to some international workers action canada we got this uh, uh calypso found this story yes Wanna read it out? it's time for canada um this is from september 17th this year Nurses, healthcare workers and their supporters are participating in a National Day of Action, protesting the lack of government action to fix the critical nursing shortage and make urgent, urgently needed improvements to Canada's 
beleaguered health care system. The Day of Action was called by the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions to express mounting frustration among overworked frontline healthcare workers. To quote, Across the country, nurses and our allies are rallying in the streets, picketing in our communities and sharing the message however we can, while still respecting public health guidelines. We are done asking for the basics. We demand action to fix the nursing crisis, said CFNU President Linda Silas. 18 months into a deadly pandemic and more than a decade into a chronic nursing shortage, nurses and healthcare staff are expressing anger and exhaustion. Widespread staffing shortages and increased demands have compromised care across the country, resulting in bed and ER closures, cancelled surgeries and less time to care for patients. The pandemic has meant countless hours of overtime for nurses, back-to-back 12-hour shifts and cancelled time off. To top things off, many provinces are balancing their budgets on the backs of nurses through wage freezes, cutbacks and layoffs, said Silas. Every day I hear from more nurses who are leaving their jobs because the current conditions are unbearable. The compensation doesn't match the value of their work and their employers and governments don't respect them. The CFNU is calling for an immediate moratorium moratorium. moratorium on nursing cuts, increased federal funding to retain and recruit more nurses, and a federal agency tasked with improving workforce data and ensuring Canada has enough healthcare workers to meet the growing need. Nurses are calling on provincial governments to end mandatory overtime, wage suppression and cancel time off, and publicly commit to safe staffing models, fair wages, benefits and permanent work for all healthcare workers, especially those in long-term care. Without urgent action from our federal and provincial governments to fix the nursing crisis, we are headed for a healthcare disaster, concluded Silas. Nurses, good on you. I've been saying that a lot this <laughs> this show. Um, anyway, they, yeah, so they are fighting uh, to because they're getting screwed over and yeah when they're most needed yeah very important work essential work um you'd think you know when you you got people's lives in your hand you'd expect you'd expect to have a bit of try to make it as easy as possible on you uh, no respect for them yeah no respect at all and you know uh canada of course has a public health system just like we have here in australia um and I suppose one thing this goes to show is that a nationalised industry does not necessarily have better conditions than a private industry. Mm. Or even if it's better, it is not good enough, especially when it comes to health. Um, So you still need a union to fight back and make sure that you can do the important work that you do properly and as well as live comfortable fulfilling life without having to worry about rent or getting food on the table or, or even getting just enough exhaustion sleep. they're working yeah. yeah crazy hours overtime mandatory and and they can't request time off that's that, that's damaging to their health too and so nursing is a hard enough profession on its own like th- having to deal with sick people and yeah. their gross bodies because they're sick. And an increased amount of uh, sick people in the hospitals at this time. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, especially when there are outbreaks and stuff. Um, I'm not sure how the how it's going in Canada, but just south in the US. Well, now that they've got their um, vaccinations going, it'll be going a bit better, but still all pretty bad and putting a lot of pressure on health services. Yes. Okay. Good on your nurses. Hope you win. Um, always great when they take action. And it's uh, like with the TWU, this isn't just a uh, employer-specific thing. This is taking industry-wide action, which is very important mm. for placing most pressure and getting a win eventually. We're coming up to the end of our show very quickly. We have four minutes left, three minutes left. And we have got to do our scallywag of the week. But before that, I really want to plug first from Anarchist Communist Mianjin. Tonight at six at Common House. That's right. The Common House, which is at 74B Wickham Street in Fortitude Valley. Anarchism 101. Anarchism 101 intro class. Join us for our fortnightly intro to radical politics class series. These classes will look at topics including capitalism, colonialism. uh, It'll be fun. So this one will be about anarchism specifically. It's an intro. It's cool. Everyone loves anarchism because the government sucks. Yes. Uh, now, our scallywag of the week is from our interview. The VC of QUT, Margaret Scheel. Yes. Screw you, Margaret. You More grub. like thought grit. <laughs> <laughs> More like marble grit. Mar- marble. Mar- marble bathroom. Marble bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Building giant marble bath luxury bathrooms while <laughs> screwing over your workers what a, what a ridiculous what a ridiculous what a ridiculous thing to do symbol it's almost cartoonish yeah <laughs> it's the kind of thing you'd it's a plot ex- of a cartoon <laughs> i must build my luxury toilet <laughs> i'm using the fantastic um yes that's it for the show. Thank you for listening. I yes. think it's been a good show. We've had I think fun. it's been an awesome show. Lots of energy. Yes. Uh, we are now going to go to Brisbane Lions for the news. That's for the right. Mo- for more news. It's it's the news time here on 4 Triple Z. We've got news and more news. Brisbane Lions, they do they do the news. They've been doing it for ages. They're good at it. Real good. It's, it's They're like, the best. It's, it's, a, it's a 4 Triple Z staple. Um, give them a listen if you like the news. Which, if you're listening to our show, maybe you do. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. Bye. See you next <laughs> Had a great time. <laughs>